Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 35, The Skill of Gymnastics, The Kill of Karate Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. Break out the sunscreen and dab a little zinc oxide on your nose because today's podcast is summer-themed. With the Marvel Cinematic Universe coming together again this week, we're devoting both segments to summer movies. First up, three of our critics argue their choice for the best summer movie season ever, and I get to pick the winner. Then our comics experts will discuss how the symbiotic relationship between comic books and mainstream movies has affected the comic book end of things. Our game this week is Endless Summer, in which the answer to every clue has summer in it. And we will wrap it up, as always, with our quick-fire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. With the Avengers Age of Ultron in theaters today, the summer movie season has officially begun. Uh, Last summer was surprisingly strong, despite the dearth of original material, and this summer looks promising also. But what is the best summer movie season of all time? I've asked our three panelists, Keith Keith Phipps, Nathan Rabin, and Tasha Robinson, to make the case for their favorite summer movie slate. And at the end of this segment, I will be the one to determine... Which of them is correct? Uh, at that point, it will be beyond debate. Uh, so before we get started, uh, um, before you make your cases, what I, what I would like to know is uh, what is your criteria for best summer ever status? Is it the, the, the sheer number of good movies? Is it the number of all-time great movies? Uh, do you need a nice variety of you know, action and comedy, that sort of thing? Do bad movies ever figure into your calculations? How, how does it go, Keith? Well, for me, it was for the summer I've chosen, which I will unveil later, um, it was kind of the, the most number of films that are still considered great or still rewatched or still, you know, quoted and, and, and uh, revisited. And, uh, uh, and I also personally agree that are, are great as well. I wasn't necessarily looking for a variety, um, uh, but just sort of the, it was a, it was, it was kind of a numbers game. Nathan? Uh, for me, a lot of it was about nostalgia. It was about kind of the year that I fell in love with movies and the summer that had the most movies that just kind of, um, endeared the entire medium to me. Uh, so yeah, for that. So 2013. <laughs> I, only, I only recently got into movies. I'm like Paul Schrader. I was on my first movie when I was 19 years old. Um, no, so a lot of it is, you know, a lot of uh, criticism is inherently subjective, inherently personal. Uh, and my year is uh, particularly uh, personal. Oh, what about you, Tasha? What, 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 what went into your calculations? Eh, nostalgia and personality are overrated. I just want stuff to blow up <laughs> real good. Oh. No, I went, with a, I went with a year. I went with a much more modern year um, with a lot more uh, of what we're, what we're seeing now, I think. I, I feel like some of the summer movie seasons just keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I guess if I was to fully follow through on that, I would say 2014 or possibly 2015. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite go that far. But, uh, you know, I, I went for something pretty modern and I went with a year um, I bad movies did calculate into into my calculus because this was a year even uh, that was great even for terrible movies this was a year with a lot of big hits um, and a lot of small hits and a lot of non hits that were fantastic and a lot of awful movies that were fantastic I just I went for uh, like the the full spherical ex- multi-level experience of, of goodness all, all right well no more teasing me like what what was the year hit me 
All right, let me go first. I'm going to go with, I know as other people have chosen this, I've seen this a couple of different places, but it, uh, even without that, I would have chosen it. It is uh, the summer of 1982, which I think is sort of a high watermark for, for um, kind of genre filmmaking in Hollywood and sort of the, a certain variety of special effects uh, and, and, and sort of other high profile, really skilled filmmakers making uh, movies that have, have lasted and uh, are, are, uh, are still remain super entertaining. I'm going to start with, I'm going to walk you through the summer here. We're going to skip May 7th. May 7th, not, not, <laughs> not that great. May 14th, Conan the Barbarian, John Milius' adaptation of the Robert E. Howard character, uh, which is a, remains a highly entertaining movie. Um, let's skip a couple, a couple weeks here. <laughs> no, 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 it, it's right. an embarrassment of riches. June okay. 4th, um, a film opens called Poltergeist. The same Ooh. day, a film opens called Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the wow. best of the Star Trek um, uh, big screen th- uh, films. One week later, a film opens called E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Can I, can I, can I stop you right there? Yeah. If you are if you are a young if you are a child, yes, you can see all three of those movies. No, nothing is stopping you from seeing Poltergeist. That's Star true. Trek these are all yeah, yeah. all PG that films is for general audiences. And I, I think I, at the time, because I was I was at this point nine years old, I only saw ET in the theaters, but certainly caught up with the rest soon after. Uh, I did see Annie on June eighteenth. Uh, I don't know if that necessarily <laughs> figures in my calculation, but uh, June twenty fifth, there's a film called uh, Blade Runner. Another film called oh The Thing oh opening. My gosh. Uh, the same day. You could go see Blade Runner and you can go see The Thing the same day. Uh, July 9th, Tron remains an interesting film. Um, July 23rd, uh, well, according to Garp, is a good film. Not necessarily <laughs> figuring into my calculations here. Um, August 13th, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And, Ooh. you know, if, you, if you're after all that, that, that parade of, of wonderful films, if you want to a, a, uh, wind it all down with a late summer film called The Beastmaster. Uh, so uh, that is the summer of yeah. 1982. I think it uh, seems like the right anticlimax too. That one, <laughs> yeah, on that. yeah, it's sort of like the 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 not quite there, uh, but full of character uh, B movie answer to the, mm-hmm. the summer that preceded it. And, and you actually Conan sk- ends with the beast. If you master. skipped over, I'm going to help your case here. You skipped yep. over. I think the most entertaining of the Rocky films, May 28th, Rocky 3. You know what? Mm. I've never seen Rocky 3. No, it's the best. Uh, yeah. Matt Singer will uh, back me up on this. It's got uh, Hulk Hogan and uh, Mr. T in it, does it not? But it, Tasha would probably. It's got it all. Just I throw in Secret of Nim uh, as another. Oh, no. Another, no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. I mean, Don Bluth's whole, whole movement was interesting, but that movie is. While very, very beautiful, it's also very, very frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, it's no, I, I'd rather go back and uh, uh, rewatch Blade Runner and the thing back to back on the same day than rewatch that. I could not do, but I did see Secret of Nim in theaters. I did see Tron in theaters uh, that year. So, yeah. So, uh, Nathan, let's, let's, let's see if you can, that's, the bar has been set high. I'm well, I would gonna... like to uh, change mine to 1982. <laughs> uh, when such amazing films as E.T., uh, Conan O'Brien. No, uh, Conan mine O'Brien. is actually Conan O'Brien. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. How was he slightly wimpier when John yeah, Milius so. kind of lost it and started making yeah. the Conan O'Brien movies? W- w- uh, wimpy yet prescient. Uh, Conan wimpy O'Brien the prescient, Conqueror yes. was not a very good movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Robert E. Howard's uh, wimpiest uh, character to date. Uh, I am going to choose the year of 1985, mm-hmm. which is, uh, God, my dad worked at real estate uh, at a mall. So I spent a lot of time at the mall just watching movies over and over and over again. So even movies that weren't good meant a lot to me at that stage in my life. So I'm going to start off with uh, May 3rd. A little movie uh, came out called Jim Cotta, <laughs> which, as uh, our, our colleague Matt Singer will remind us, combines the thrill of karate uh, with the weight. <laughs> The thrill of the kill of karate with the thrill of martial art, of gymnastics. gymnastics. 
<laughs> Damn you, Jim Goddard. You have the best tagline in the whole world, and I can't remember it for the love of God. Um, and then from there, you kind of have a kind of iconic movies like uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2, which I do not believe I was allowed to see because I was only like nine years old at the time. Fletch, which I amazingly have not seen. Goonies, which does not mean as much to me as it does the rest of my generation, but is such a pop uh, icon, such a landmark uh, for our uh, for my generation uh, that it definitely kind of figures in. Uh, Pretzi's Honor, amazing film. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I saw at the time. Uh, one of uh, John Houston's kind of last hurrahs. Um, Cocoon, mm. really, really solid uh, Ron Howard movie. I remember watching that at like a drive-in uh, and being uh, introduced to like the charms of Don Amici and Wilfred Brimley and all these old people. Um, from there, we have maybe one of my three favorite films of all time. Uh, July 3rd, a little movie called Back to the Future opens. Uh, Back to the Future, along with another movie that opened uh, this summer, um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I think. Those are the two movies that kind of got me hooked permanently mm. on uh, film as a genre. It made me think, like, this is what I want to do with my life. You know, this is who I want to be. Like, this just gives me such an explosion of joy. Um, and there are also, you know, some other interesting films from uh, that summer. Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not the best of the franchise, but pretty intriguing and uh, at least had the most memorable theme song. Uh, at the very least, uh, <laughs> Explorers, which I just uh, rewatched and really holds up uh, really, really well. Silverado, really solid Western from uh, Kevin Costner and Lawrence Kasdan. Um, and then you have stuff like National Lampoon's European Vacation, which is a terrible movie, but I remember solely because it had some boobs in it. Uh, and when you're nine years old, that matters a lot. Fright Night, uh, August 2nd, I thought was a fantastic uh, kind of uh, underrated uh, little uh, horror comedy. Great performance by Roddy McDowell. Um, and then Real Genius. Yep. That's another great, great cult comedy that totally hit me at the right moment. Uh, at the right spot. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely going to go with 1985. Got Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf, uh, yeah. At the end of August, another movie. I not, just watched that. Not, not a the- masterpiece, but a very entertaining movie. And, my God, uh, Michael J. Fox owned 1985. I mean, he was on Family Ties at, the, at that yeah. same point. I mean, he was just the most charming, likable, delightful actor in the entire world, and that was his heyday, his pinnacle. Um, so the- 41 writes in. Oh, a new kind of martial arts combat, the skill of gymnastics, the kill of karate. Yes, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought for a second when you're building up, like, this is one of my favorite films of all time. This is the one we've been really building. I thought, I thought you were going to say Sen Elmo's Fire, but you skipped right over that. Uh, t- uh, again, it's an important, iconic it film. Is, not, not, not a good motion picture, no, I would but, argue. But, uh, but one that stays in your memory. And certainly, again, talking about theme songs that just yeah. uh, earworms. Uh, Tasha Robinson, I think you're going to bring us a little bit more up to date. Right? Yeah, there's there's a lot of cobwebs in this room. No, actually, I don't have the same kind of nostalgia, I think, for, for those years. Because the 80s were kind of when I was watching movies uh, at home on VHS. Like, I don't have the the attachment to those all of these films as occurrences in specific years. Mm-hmm. They were spread out pretty evenly throughout my childhood. So it, like they aren't they aren't tied to a time and place in the same way like their recent past is for me. So I'm gonna go I'm gonna appeal to the the burning cinematic love and deep nostalgia of people who are about twenty years old right now <laughs> and uh, go with two thousand eight. Two thousand eight was the year that kicked off the Marvel Cinematic Universe and mm. completely changed what uh, what our summer movie seasons have looked like ever since. That was Iron Man 
Man and The Incredible Hulk uh, pretty much back to back month to month. I didn't go through in a, um, a date by date kind of way. I broke these down more by categories in terms you of your own way in. You have how your own they process. received. I, I can I can go my own way. I believe a I believe a certain singer said that. Uh, so that was also the summer of uh, you know that that one movie with the man bat that uh, seemed to be kind uh, of influential. The Dark Knight motion picture. The Dark Knight motion picture, and, uh, which I am given to understand a, a few people liked. It was the the Dark Knight dominated that particular summer. But uh, in addition to that, just for for giant blockbusters, you had Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. That was the year of Wall-E. It was the year of Hancock, which has a bad reputation you're making a face but it's i've rewatched it it's a really fun movie and it made a lot of money for a a theoretical flop i would say it has more of a mixed reputation uh, I, I feel like it's been it's been sort of revived by I don't know uh, pop culture writers uh, such as one Nathan Rabin yeah. uh, who have helped rehabilitate it. Uh, Kung Fu Panda kind of convinced the world that, that DreamWorks mm-hmm. wasn't a a one shot fluke factory. It also made six hundred million dollars, and it's really a surprisingly terrific film. Um, Tropic Thunder, also a lot of fun. There were a lot of uh, really, really terrible blockbusters that year um, and a lot of really terrible films in general. But one of the things that, uh, I, mean, I mean, okay, so that is the year of Beverly Hills Chihuahua. It's the year of the love guru. It's the year of uh, Wanted and Sex in the City. What are you arguing again? <laughs> it's the year of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Uh, all of those movies did come out, but some of the big stinkers of the year were really fun. Um, that was That was the year of the Twilight movie. It was the year of Death Race. And it was the year of one of my favorite terrible films of all time, M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, which is a a tremendous hoot. I have forced that movie on so many people. (laughs) Um, I tremble every time I see a tree because of that movie. Here's the thing, that that season wasn't just the season of like these these the big explosive blockbusters and the the big fun terrible films for me. It was also the year of Red Belt, uh, Son mm-hmm. of Rambo, Mr. Lonely, Stuck, uh, Herzog's Encounters at the End of the World, which is a terrific film, a Full Battle Rattle, which is a really underseen and really fantastic documentary, mm-hmm. Man on Wire, and uh, I I believe uh, Melissa Leo being one of your favorite people, Scott. I'm going to go directly to the Melissa Leo. Uh, well with Frozen River uh, also came out that that summer so it was it was a really good diverse year you know not just these uh you know these these giant monumental films that figured into our our 80s nostalgia but like a, a good round the world kind of thing and also just for me it was very it was very personal and very specific year because it was the year the Tarsum's the fall came out mm-hmm. and that would probably still be in my top 10 movies of all time so uh, there's that's that's my argument for 2008 i would throw in speed racer too as a recent, speed as racer a recent did come out that, that year yeah and i'm and i'm not as big a fan of as as some people but i also don't think it deserved to be to have the reputation it did. It's it's still a very beautiful and, and very strange and very specific. And the Strangers movie. was that year too, one of the better horror films. I still haven't seen recent. The Strangers oh. because I like sleeping. Powerful. At night. Yeah, it's really it's really disturbing, <laughs> uh, but quite I think I think pretty pretty great. So that's interesting because I think um, you know these are kind of like watershed type of years for for you know the, the years that everyone's been mentioning that kind of like. You know, certain standards were set, as you said, with 2008. You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe started. Uh, DreamWorks proved that it could do things that weren't as, what we assumed DreamWorks was going to do. Uh, you know, uh, Pixar made, I think, maybe, if not its best film, then one of its most uh, daring, uh, bold ventures in WALL-E. Um, so uh, that, that, there's an interesting case to be made for that year. I just, if I have to, if I have to choose a year, 
I, just, I gotta go with 1982. This is too. <laughs> this is too much. It's what the, what it's if I over, threw in that After Hours? It's out overwhelming. At the very end of 1985. I mean, even the sequels. I mean, Rocky yeah. three, Star Trek two, <laughs> oh, except Grease two. Grease two is the worst of the Grease movies. <laughs> by, by, I will. By, I will. Uh, by say a solid. I will say that margin. that is actually pretty entertaining in a very campy sort of yeah, way. Yeah, I know. And has a hell, a hell of a cult following as well. Yep. Yep. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm gonna go with 82, but I think that all all three are very very good years. And I, you know, and, and I think also nostalgia might help. Like maybe, you know, when we do this very same segment again, twenty years from now, <laughs> we'll look back and say, "Hey, two thousand eight. Wow, that's the year that changed everything." Yeah, Keith's gonna still go with uh, with eighty two, and he's still gonna win. I mean, it is it that is a pretty unbelievable like lineup of of movies yeah. that were. He claimed really it instantly, by the way. Like the moment I chose this project, I didn't even have to wait to solicit years. He just like put it right in there. It's like boom. He, he, he knew he, he had it locked it locked in. Um, Phipps wins. Phipps wins again. All right, uh, uh, Keith, Nathan, Tasha, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an understatement to say that comic books have completely transformed American studio filmmaking, especially lately, as superheroes from the Marvel and DC lines have been at the center of complex franchises and interconnected universes. They've also affected the visual language of film and shaped our conception of what a hero is. But what's the other side to that? How has this symbiotic relationship between mainstream movies and mainstream comics affected the way comic books have developed? As a complete comics dunce, I'm going to rely on experts to tell me, and I have three of them right in front of me. Uh, Keith Phipps. Hello. Uh, Tasha Robinson. Greetings. And our special guest, Eisner-nominated comics critic Oliver Saba. Hi, Oliver. Howdy. Oliver, let's start with you. Uh, you know, once a comic becomes a blockbuster, how does that usually affect the storylines going forward? Is it kind of a tail wagging the dog type of situation? Well, uh, the comic doesn't actually need to become a blockbuster in order for the movie to affect what happens in the comics. That's kind of the interesting thing. Once something becomes a movie, the comics immediately start shifting to reflect whatever the movie is going to be showing. So, like, for example, there's an Ant-Man movie coming out. So a couple months ago, Marvel launched a new Ant-Man comic. Because that's what you can always expect. If a character is getting a movie, they're going to get a comic. Or if a villain shows up in a movie, they're going to show up in the comics. If they haven't been there in a while, they're coming back. Well, I mean, does that does that have what kind of effect does that have? Does it does it ruin comics sometimes? Or <laughs> I mean, not really. Superhero comics in general are really predictable, but you kind of can use the movies as a predestined reset point. The best example I have is recently there there was a year long Spider Man storyline where Doctor Octopus switched his mind with Peter Parker and took over Peter Parker's body and basically was like an evil Spider Man. And all the fans got really mad about it. They didn't like this at all. And eventually it ended up being a pretty cool story. But the entire time I was just thinking, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is coming out next year. Peter Parker is going to be in his body when that movie comes out. And surely enough, when that happened, Peter Parker was there. Does it make it, I mean, does that make comics less interesting, though, to having this having this kind of platform? I mean, is there, or, or, or is there kind of a more attention, I guess, given to, you know, to, given to uh, making these as good as they can be? I think it's more of the latter, honestly. You've seen higher-profile creative teams put on a lot of these books since the movies have come out. It's just they know that people might go to read the comics, so they're going to put comic creators that will hopefully keep people reading and ideally get 
good press sustained through strong creative teams. It also, it, it just pulls back the, uh, the veil that shows that superhero comics are, uh, can kind of be, can be kind of silly and that continuity can be a little flexible and things can change very quickly. I remember it's not really anything new. I know in the nineties, the reason Superman and Lois Lane got married was because of the TV show, uh, the Adventures of Lois and Clark mm-hmm. where they were getting married on there. So you had this, um, show that was primarily best I can tell primarily not even something that superhero fans enjoyed. Um, it was more aimed at sort of like, you know, grownups, more of a romantic show, kind of campy. Uh, but because it was a higher profile, um, a TV show will always be higher profile than any sort of comic book. The comic book was kind of brought into alignment with that. But I mean, it goes back even further than that. Like even back to the Batman TV series being such a hit that the the Batman comics started lightening up, mm-hmm. sort of in response to that. And I've actually read that uh, the the Tim Burton Batman movie caused the comics to take another shift, uh, including changing the color of his costume, like the standard color of his costume, from blue to black, just in response to that. So I mean, it it, it goes back a ways. There's plenty of precedent. But I think it's interesting that we only really see this with the big conglomerations that are thinking about, you know, marketing and multi-platforming and synergizing and, you know, all of those exciting buzzwords that we hate. You don't see it with all of the independent uh, comics that are being made into movies, uh, largely because a lot of these are standalones, you know. Mm-hmm. The, when the surrogates or RIPD or Scott Foot Pilgrim versus the World or whatever is made into a movie, you don't see somebody going back and, and adding another book. It only happens because... A lot of these big companies that are doing these big mainstream comics are are doing ongoing stories and often doing many different titles. So they have the option of saying, let's have uh, an Avengers Assembled comic that more closely resembles the movie, but we can still have these other threads where that same heroes are doing other things separately. We can have Thor be a woman in this timeline in this comic and have a different Thor doing something different with the Avengers over here because we're trying to sell 50 different titles to anybody that we can actually actually get there and get our hands on. Yeah, in terms of uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, I recently uh, spoke with Brian Lee O'Malley about uh, recoloring the book, and he mentioned that they were taking cues directly from the movie in terms of how they were coloring costumes and how certain scenes uh, were colored. Oh, I uh, did not know that. Yeah, uh, which is kind of exactly what we're talking about in terms of the most explicit uh, taking influence from the film. I know that that's, the f- that's a very uh, tactful way of saying what you just said was complete, complete bull, Tasha. You are completely wrong. But, uh, but at the same time, the movie diverges so heavily from the comic mm-hmm. book in the second half. Reading the comics and uh, the coloring especially becomes way different mm-hmm. and they can do all these weird things because they're not confined to what the movie did at that point because uh, the story pretty much goes in a completely different direction. Oh, sure. Not completely different direction. They still fight all the boyfriends. but. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's also got a very different tone. I mean, there's a lot of different stuff going on there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we, we've talked about uh, the uh, you know, big lines, Marvel, DC, being made into movies. Uh, but how is this whole uh, movement, I guess, affecting independent comics as well? I mean, I think one thing that you're seeing is 
because Marvel and, and DC have so much content tied up and they're making so much money with it, all of these like little uh, studios and sort of budding conglomerates that are trying to get into content making um, are snapping up the rights to any indie titles that they can get their hands on that look like they would make good movies. Mm-hmm. And you have things like like Comcast just getting into, uh, into independent production, um, and they bought the rights to Oblivion and had a big hit with that. Um, they bought the rights to RPD and had a big flop with that. Uh, most recently, they did Two Guns, which actually did pretty well for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these are, are smaller titles. So you have a lot of different uh, outlets now for like smaller creator-owned comics to suddenly make huge influence of money uh, because all of these people are sniffing around looking for the rights for them. But I do think that this is a much harder thing to track, but I suspect that uh, the indie comics world now kind of has its eye in that direction because if you're making, uh, you know, if you, if you have as an independent artist a lot more freedom to make whatever you want, but if you know that if you make something action-oriented, uh, something saleable, it has a much, much higher chance of being bought and, and grabbed and turned into a movie, or at least you have a much higher chance of just being handed a whole lot of money, whether it ever becomes a movie or not. That is a pretty big incentive, you know, to make your 30 days of night or whatever. Yeah, a lot of independent comics... Uh, new independent comics are starting to read a lot more like movie or TV pitches. Uh, they, they want to give producers a visual version of the script that could maybe be on screen. And the comic book is a really easy way to do that without worrying about any sort of budget. You don't have to film anything uh, like any book by Mark Millar essentially <laughs> is. Uh, mm. wants to be turned into a into movie. Into a terrible movie. <laughs> and, like, For terrible and the thing people. is, and they all get optioned. They all get optioned. Every single one. Like, Starlight got optioned. New one, Jupiter's Legacy, just got optioned. But you also don't see the movies impact those books very much because the creators have complete control over them a lot of the time. So, like, for example, Jeff Lemire has a new image book called Descender, which is sort of a... Uh, like atmospheric sci-fi robots being sad and aliens that look really cool. Uh, (laughs) And it was, I believe Sony picked it up before the first issue ever came out. Uh, I spoke to him as well and he was basically like, this is the movie. They can do whatever the hell they want with it. I own the comic book and I can do whatever I want with that. They're not related at all. I don't have control. That's similar to what Brian Lee O'Malley said too. Like you just kind of let go of it. But if you're working at a corporation that doesn't want Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver to be X-Men anymore, mutants, you have to deal with that if you want to write those characters. And that's that's something else that's come up is is as it's kind of an interesting side effect to whole Marvel success, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and trying to like sort of move away from the studios where they have their characters licensed. Um, you know, it's Fox can keep making Fantastic Four, has, owns Fantastic Four movie rights as long as they keep making movies. Um, but I don't think, you know, the, the, the story is that Marvel's not happy about that, not particularly happy about Fox having the X-Men rights. And weird things are going on with their comic books, aren't they? Yeah, Fantastic Four, the comic book, just uh, I think next week gets canceled, canceled as its last issue. Yeah. But everything's ending before whatever the hell Secret Wars is. But there's no plans in sight for Fantastic Four. And it kind of just ended with a whimper because the rumors are that Marvel doesn't want to be publishing a comic that will be giving attention to Fox's movie property. But huh. that's... I Which feel is, like, and this is their flagship title, like though, the movie, you know? 
Marvel's going to make so much more money off Fantastic Four comic if it's there when there's a movie yeah, out. It's so, so they yeah. shoot themselves in the foot. Well, but Fantastic Four also it. doesn't sell that well. I mean, apparently at, at also, point, oh, go ahead, sorry. At that point, it, it, it stops being like the, the tail wagging the dog and starts being, we're cutting off the dog's tail. Mm. Like, we're cutting off the dog's tail and we don't care what it does to the dog. Because <laughs> it does seem like, you know, they have the opportunity to have somebody else like advertising their comics on a large scale and they don't want to do it. You asked whether like this process of back and forth between the movies and the comics makes the comics less interesting and to me that's sort of a silly question because who oh, sorry Scott you're looking you're that. looking all guilty now right. I feel like a dog missing a tail <laughs> well if you're a Dober a Doberman Pinscher maybe that's not so bad I the, it's the question of what is interesting depends on who you ask you know everybody finds something different interesting the c- comic book fans of the world are some of the most opinionated strong-willed <laughs> specific fans with specific tastes out there in culture. And so, you know, different ones of them are going to have different opinions about whether it's cooler to have, you know, Nick Fury, angry white guy, or Nick Fury, look, dude who looks exact, well, Nick Fury Jr., dude who looks exactly like Samuel L. Jackson. Like, which one of those is more interesting? It depends on your tastes. But when you have situations like the Fantastic Four thing uh, shutting down, or Marvel's dictate to its writers to not create any more mutants because they don't have the rights to the mutants, so now, you know, if you create a new character, it can't be part of the, this giant, fascinating metaphor that's been going on for decades. It has to be something different or we won't own the rights to it. Like that, to me, that is the point where you stop trying to use the movies to drive creativity and start using them to stifle creativity. Like you're, they're actively putting a muzzle on what kind of stories people can tell because of who will have the rights and how they'll be marketed. And that, to me, just becomes a, a terrible limiting factor. Well, that, I mean, that, let me float this analogy because I, I, I you know to, to you I mean I feel like you know as, as someone who doesn't really read comics I'm, I'm afraid or never very many comics but who watches all, all of these movies the movies especially the Marvel films bring me back to like the old studio system where, where it was this big collaborative effort where, where the the idea of the director as the author of the film is is pretty limited or much more limited than we're, we're, we're used to seeing and but I'm now thinking that that ethos is really is really the ethos from the comic book world those are the that's the way that's the way you know a big house like Marvel or DC works it's like they're they're much more in control than, than even you know a modern uh, Hollywood studio oh absolutely I mean, I mean one reason the Marvel Cinematic Universe has worked is they've kind of imported what made Marvel Comics work mm-hmm. uh, especially mm-hmm. you know when, when it's going well which is have like a, a cohesive vision uh, and have a, a you know a clear place you know clear idea of where all the pieces go and how they all fit and have it driven by a bigger editorial uh, you know you know sort of not individual writers and directors but a larger editorial vision and that can be stifling for comics sometimes and probably can be stifling for movies sometimes but there's also something kind of satisfying about it too. There's there's a reason like people immerse themselves in Marvel continuity in the comics, and I think I've seen it more and more with the Marvel Cinematic Universe as that gets bigger and more and more titles come and it expands into television and, and di- different types of television shows and kind of keeps mutating. Although are we allowed to say mutating? No. About Marvel? <laughs> Fox has the <laughs> rights to the podcast. Um, well, we've been talking a lot about, about Marvel. Uh, D- DC and the movies that have been made from DC Comics are a whole other story, aren't they, Keith? Yeah, and I feel like the comics um, have suffered somewhat in, in, in the sense that there's been sort of, I mean, without getting into nuts and bolts, but there's been a lot of retailering lately. You know, it's a way it looks like they're trying to get things to look to be movie-friendly and movie-friendly in, in, in a way that kind of lines up 
with their particular vision of what DC superhero movies should be. And I think this has changed a lot over the last couple of years, but, but in the last, I'd say in the last year or so, there's been a move away from this, but for a while, everything was just sort of dark and grim and looked like Man of Steel or a Christopher Nolan Batman movie and had all these characters that were kind of pulled into that vision that didn't really work for it. I mean, I kind of checked out after a while, Oliver. You, you kept up a little more than I did. Yeah, I kept up with a couple new 52 titles, but there was a good three years uh, from like 2011 to 2014 where things really looked the same. There was mm-hmm. a, a house style that was uninteresting. It just felt bland. It was very also inspired by sort of the look of 90s comics, which just is very dated and doesn't really allow for much versatility and... It wasn't that. It wasn't very and, good. And but, am, I, am I wrong in saying they're kind of like sort of maybe setting setting up for movies that look the same way or setting up the characters in a way that made them made them sort of movie friendly? Yeah, and I still I think you still see a lot of that, especially as there's more TV shows yeah. being built on DC characters. Like these properties are being made for mass appeal, ideally for adaptation. Uh, but at the same time, I'm seeing at DC and Marvel, they both went in that direction for a while, and then they realized that it wasn't selling very well. So you're starting to see them move further away from that and bring in more interesting creators that are not trying to replicate the look of a film. But at the same time, all those big characters are staying pretty much in line with who they are on screen. But then at the same time, there's Marvel where you have a female Thor and... Falcon is Captain America right now, but when those characters are back in a movie, they'll probably be back at who they were five years ago, whenever the last movie came out. So Oliver, where where can people find you? Where can people find your Eisner-nominated work? (laughs) (laughs) I do most of my writing over at the AV Club, where I do uh, comic reviews and previews and interviews, and I review a lot of TV shows, cartoons, and... TV based on comic books. I uh, read Daredevil and Agent Carter and Agent Shield. Mm-hmm. The Marvel beat, Marvel TV beat, is kind of uh, what I handle over there. And then I also do comic stuff for LA Times Hero Complex, which okay. is a lot of fun. All right. Well, well thank, thank you, Oliver, and uh, thank you, Keith and Tasha. Excelsior. To complete our summer-themed podcast episode, the game this week is Endless Summer, in which I give you a simple clue, and the answer will always have summer in the title. Uh, You will need your barnyard buzzers for this one, Uh, so the Scott Tobias rule is in effect. I am Scott Tobias. If you buzz in and get the answer wrong, you lose a point, but you're going to want to be ready because the game will pass as swiftly as summer in Chicago. Uh, Joining me are Keith Phipps, Nathan Rabin, and Rachel Handler. All right, everybody, get ready. It's going to be fast. It's gonna be, this game's going to be over in like 30 seconds. Yes. I don't know. We'll see. All right. An Ingmar Bergman comedy. Nathan Rabin. The Smiles of a Summer Night. Yes. One for Nathan. A Joss Whedon favorite. Keith. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was excited to buzz in. All right. Negative one for Keith. Nathan. Summer Glau. Summer Glau is correct. Oh. So it can be a person as well as a movie. Yes. Okay. Summer, just uh, summer everywhere. Uh, her brothers are more famous, but they didn't play Esther Khan. Nathan Raven. Uh, gotta be Summer Phoenix. Correct, Nathan. All right, here's a musical clue. Are you ready? Well, oh, well, oh, well, oh, huh? 
What, who's who mood? Who's who's got the cow? Rachel. Summer loving. No, Nathan. Nathan. Uh, uh, tell me more. Nope. You're summer, on. Summer. I thought it was summer loving. One negative one. I could have sort of summer loving. Uh, I have nothing. Nothing. Look, game. I, I think Rachel is right. Summer, summer nights. nights. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think I saw Grease for the first time five years ago. So. Yeah, it's fresh in your memory. How do you forget yeah. that that song? All right, uh, another musical clue. You make my dreams. That is the name of the song. That's the name of the song. Yeah. You make a my dreams come true. Hollow notes. Yeah. Use it in a movie. Yeah. No, I know. I know. I don't know what movie it was. Right, it's uh, it's, uh, it's uh, five hundred days of summer. Oh. Five, that, that is the song that uh, that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt sings. Oh. On the syllabus today. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Keith. Summer School. Correct. Summer oh, School. Yeah, yeah. All right. Keep going. Emily Blunt Breakthrough. My Summer of Love. Yep. Keith. My Summer of Love. Featuring a talking can of vegetables. Ah! Wet Hot American Summer. Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, Nathan, Nathan was betrayed by his... Uh, <laughs> I was betrayed by my malfunctioning buzzer. Yep. Wet Hot American Summer. What, what do we got? What's the score? Okay, it's still close. Anybody's anybody's game. All right, Nathan, you got it now. All right, the 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 movie made by the winner of Project Greenlight season one. Oh. Oh yeah. God, I've actually seen. Yeah, this. you have. Oh, Keith. Oh wait, in the summer. That's in there. Summer's in there. <laughs> uh, no, I thought I had it, but I don't. Sorry. Yep. The Battle of Back Shaker Heights? Zero. Nope, that's not I have it. No, no idea. Stolen Summer. Stolen mm. Summer. So negative one for Keith. So uh, we've got we've got about six more here. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor meets Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Rachel. Oh wait, I messed that up. <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> Long Hot Summer. No. Uh, suddenly Last Summer. Correct. Suddenly Last okay. Summer. Um, all right. Where, where are we at now? I was going to say things, Cat in a Hot Summer. Things have really, <laughs> yeah. <things are> really, <laughs> uh, really shaken up. What do we got now? Uh, Keith and Nathan are tied at one. Rachel's still at zero. One to zero. Okay, everybody. A Kim Kaduck for all seasons. A Kim Kaduck for all seasons. I'm looking at you, Keith. I know. Nathan? Uh, summer, April, fall, oh, spring. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, spring, summer, winter. Uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring. That's right. Yeah. Spring, <laughs> summer, fall, winter, dot, 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 and spring. I don't get partial credit. Yeah, I don't know what that was. Um, I'm afraid not on there this in this case. Um, it was seasons and months. It was like, oh. <laughs> right, but the title was the title is not as elegant. Um, this one's for you, Nathan. Come on now. Freddie Prince is a quality oh. summer catch. Wow! <laughs> I was waiting for that one. I yeah, knew it was going to be part of it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, Gordon's Fisherman Avenger. Nathan Raven. Uh, I know what you did last time. Correct. Man. Um, are you ready? Another musical, cr- another musical clue? The hot and the cold are both so intense. Put them together, it just makes sense. Yes. Oh, uh, uh, it's In Summer. In the Summer, that's from right, Frozen. from the movie Frozen. You give that one to me. Yeah. And, and, uh, and last one, what, what's the score? Do we, anyone have a shot here? Pizza has three. Nathan and Rachel are tied with one. Oh, I'm sorry. Battle for second place. Last one. I could crap out. Oh, you've done that, haven't you? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn falls into a canal. Yes. Summertime. Summertime mm. is right. So Keith, Keith puts a solid. That's a solid W for yeah. Keith. Keith, Nathan, Rachel, summer's coming up. Are you excited? Very. Uh, all right. Well, I'll see you, I'll see you all uh, later on. Thank you. <laughs>
And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in... Nathan Raven. And... Rachel Handler. Have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Nathan... How you feeling? You feeling good about, feeling about good. your chances feeling here? Feeling good. All right. Well, you're gonna go first. Okay. So, uh, Genevieve's on the timer. Uh, on my on my mark, three, two, one, go. Well, I'm going to recommend a uh, movie that's uh, coming out very soon from our friends over at Shout Factory called Miami Blues. Mm. It is an adaptation of a Charles Whit- uh, Wilford uh, paperback novel, um, starring Alec Baldwin as a charismatic. Uh, uh, crook and maybe his most charismatic performance uh fred ward is hilarious as a cop who lives in a geriatric home and it's just an utter utter sleeper that is utterly delightful jennifer jason lee uh plays a hooker with a heart of gold absolutely fantastic can't recommend enough thank you Ooh, solidly 30 seconds on the on the dot uh good one nathan uh uh, rachel it's uh, it's your turn are you ready uh genevieve with the timer okay three two one go so I want to recommend a book that I just read called Americana, Be Turned Into a Movie. Um, it's by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, it was named one of the top 10 books of 2013 by the New York Times. Um, it's about a, lo- a Nigerian girl and boy. They grow up, they fall in love, they're separated by space and circumstance, and it transfers back and forth between their perspectives. And it's romantic and it's dramatic, but it never veers into melodrama. It's, really, it's also a really sharp and funny critique of America and Nigeria and a look at what it means to be a black woman and a black man in both countries. And it's amazing, and I want it to be a movie the end. <laughs> okay, so this is this is this is a pitch for something that that may be a movie, or you? I just want, want to it be, to be a movie. You want I want you. I want you to, to greenlight this movie. Wow! I, if I had that power, I would. I would. I would. <laughs> and finance that. it. I don't have that power though. Uh, 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 so I'm. Not, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to give this to one to Nathan because you know, yes, Miami Blues is a movie that does exist. Okay. And I also feel like I also feel it is a film that everyone should see. Because it's it's uh, absolutely fantastic, yeah. yeah modern mo- modern uh, modern noir at its at its sharpest and funniest. And and, and when this book when uh, it comes is made out, into I'll a movie, again. then yeah, then you'll get your redemption. <laughs> then you'll have your exactly. revenge. Uh, all right, uh, Nathan and Rachel, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That does it for episode 35 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. And if you have any questions or thoughts, email us at feedback at thedissolve.com. Uh, please also uh, go to uh, iTunes, uh, put, put in a rating or in a review. That would help us. Uh, a great deal, especially if you like us. Uh, uh, the Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And remember, summer sun, something's begun. But oh, these summer nights. <laughs> <laughs>